We are grateful you've made the choice to visit us again to continue our extended in-depth study of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon delivered by the perfect preacher. Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with a series of statements, sometimes called the Beatitudes, statements of blessing. You know, if you went to a positive mental attitude seminar in our time, if you bought a self-help book or pop psychology magazine, if you listen to TV talk shows, you do not usually hear anything like the Beatitudes. You hear some person's formula for success. You are treated to a testimony of how you can get ahead through shrewdness and assertiveness and empowerment and diplomacy, but Jesus in this sermon was speaking of spiritual qualities. He was describing the character of kingdom citizens, and he was clearly outlining a kingdom not of this world. So these statements assault every maxim of conventional worldly wisdom. It must be further noted that not only are these qualities spiritual, but they are qualities which would not come to men naturally. They are not the products of heredity or environment, but of choice and self-will. You decide to walk away from sin, you make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, and you set yourself to the challenge of cultivating these spiritual qualities, poor in spirit, mourning over sin, being meek as Jesus was, and then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The English Standard Version, they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. All right. I want you to try to do something as an exercise for your benefit. Take a piece of paper, maybe during the class, maybe after, and write at the top of that piece of paper, if I really hunger and thirst after righteousness, here's what I will do, and then make a list. And as we study, or as you read the passage later, go through that list and make it a personal review of your relationship with God. If I hunger and thirst after righteousness, here is what I will do. And I'll go through my list after a few minutes of our study. Righteousness needs to be defined here. Righteousness generally is conformity to a standard. The word righteousness is used many times in the New Testament, sometimes with different meanings depending upon the context. But here, in this passage, let's say it this way. It is that which is right as determined and decreed by God that we must seek and participate in to be faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. That which is right as determined and decreed by God that we must seek to engage in, to be faithful citizens in Christ's kingdom. 
I want us to think about the expression hungering and thirsting. And for many of us, that may be difficult. Why? There are exceptions, but generally speaking, we don't experience the extremes of hungering and thirsting. Now, there may be people in this virtual audience watching this video who are the exception. Most of us, I think, have not known the extremes of hunger. I've never gone to bed hungry, but I recognize many around the world and throughout history certainly have. Even if we've been poor, most of us have always had something to eat. It may therefore be difficult for us to really grasp the extreme condition of not having any food and really beginning to feel hunger in your life and your body. Hungering and thirsting means not only wanting something, but really needing something for your survival. Have you ever seen TV reports of famine relief and a truck pulls up filled with bags of rice and there is a crowd that forms quickly and there is panic and people running over each other to get something to eat and drink? It's about their survival. It isn't just about wanting to eat. They need to. Their body drives them to be fed. All right. Bring all of that over into the realm of spiritual and moral. Hungering and thirsting means you not only want to know what's right before God, you want to do it. You need to know. You need to obey. This beatitude reflects true spiritual passion, knowing that if you do not participate in this nutrition, spiritually, you will die. Now, let's not misread this. Jesus is not talking about merely increasing our knowledge of biblical and doctrinal facts, though that is necessarily a part of this. We're talking about wanting to know so you can survive spiritually, wanting to know and do the will of God. This is desire that doesn't stop until satisfied, <clears throat> and therefore it doesn't stop. It continues all through your life. You see what this is about? Now, you remember I asked you a moment ago, I suggested you make a list. If I really hunger and thirst after righteousness, what will I do? Here's my list. If I really hunger and thirst after righteousness, I will want to be more like God I will want to read and study my Bible. I will want to immediately apply what I learn. I will want to tell others. I will want to speak out against sin. I want to confess my sin, ask God to forgive me, repent. I want to worship. I want to obey God and be a disciple of Christ and be around people who are faithful to God. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness they shall be satisfied and seek that satisfaction the rest of their lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There are several things we need to remember as we continue to go through the Beatitudes. Let me speak 
just for a moment about the word blessed. That's not ordinary earthly happiness. It's a depth of spiritual and inner satisfaction that is enjoyed by those who are following Christ, serving God. Not typical earthly happiness that goes up and down and depends upon circumstances. Spiritual blessedness that begins on the inside when you submit wholly to the rule of Christ. I think there may be a progression, a sequence in the Beatitudes. You realize that you are spiritually poor. You allow that recognition of poverty spiritually to cause you to mourn over your sin. As you mourn over your sin and seek to move away from spiritual poverty, you become meek. That attitude of submission causes you to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You seek that which will satisfy your deepest needs. And then as a function of that, you become merciful as you move closer to God. Can we talk about what mercy is? Mercy has to do with how we view, how we feel, and what we do toward people in legitimate need. Here is a person in need, physical need, emotional need, spiritual trouble, legitimate need we're aware of. How do we regard that person? How do we view that person? How do we feel about all that? And then what do we do for this person, given whatever ability and opportunity we have? Mercy has to do with how we view, how we feel, and what we do toward people in legitimate need. Thayer's definition is goodwill toward the miserable, the afflicted, joined with a desire to relieve them. Not just goodwill, but goodwill joined with the desire to relieve them. Paul Earnhardt in his book on the Sermon on the Mount says, it is mercy that shows compassion to the helpless, Luke 10, 37, and extends forgiveness even to the one who gives repeated offense, Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Mercy is not capricious, prejudiced, or temporary. It is a settled disposition of heart and character. All through the Bible, you read about people who were merciful. Perhaps what immediately comes to mind is the Good Samaritan, who showed mercy when others did not. He stopped. He took the time. He cleansed the man's wounds. He even loaded the man on his donkey and carried him to the inn for the night. Then he said to the innkeeper, put it on my tab. That's mercy. That's mercy. I tell you, there's a higher example. God's mercy toward sinners. Paul said in the book of Titus in chapter 3, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy toward us is the chief 
illustration of what mercy is. Now, look at this part of it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, we should not interpret this as one-to-one -one legalism. In this instance, uh, let's say, I feel I need some mercy from God, and so I go out and do something merciful and then come back and tell God, okay, you owe me now. No, that's, that's not it at all. Not it at all. This is about the kind of people God wants to forgive and bless and help. Mercy finds expression. It isn't just an attitude or feeling. It finds expression in action. God wants to help those who have this disposition. And when we are in right relationship with God, that energizes us, motivates us to do what God did for us, show mercy to others as God showed mercy to us. And God responds to that. One more, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we talk about purity or remark that something is pure, just what are we talking about? Are we talking about something that is so absolute, so perfect and superior, it's far beyond the reach of any man? When we speak of purity, do we mean something that is just a little better than average? What do we mean? What's a definition of purity? Webster says, containing nothing that does not properly belong, marked by chastity, free from whatever weakens or pollutes. Now, we can just stop right here and begin to form some ideas about mental purity. It is purity inside, not this heart, but this heart, mental purity. Think about the mind and read the definition again, containing nothing that does not properly belong, marked by chastity, free from whatever weakens or pollutes. The apostle Peter over in his first epistle speaks of pure minds, minds free from anything that weakens or pollutes, a mind that we can have when we respond to God through Jesus Christ. Synonyms would be genuine, clean, innocent, chaste, unadulterated. The Bible talks about a lot of things that are pure. The Lord's commandments are pure. The wisdom that's from above in James 3.17 is pure. There is 1 John 3 verse 3 saying that Christ is pure. And therefore, we ought to be pure just as he is. There is pure and undefiled religion in James 1.27. Heaven is certainly pure. So purity means clean, unadulterated, mental purity that we're able to have when we respond to the gospel of Christ and continue to be obedient disciples. Remember those things that are pure the Lord's commandments, the wisdom that's from above, Christ, pure and undefiled religion, heaven is pure. God's people are to be pure, and we are to be pure from the inside out. Pure from the inside out. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, 
Blessed are the utterly sincere. Blessed are the pure in heart. Then it says, for they shall see God. Now, does that mean I can just look up if I'm pure inside, made pure by Christ? I can just look up and actually see God? No, this is not physical observation with literal eyes. John 1.18 says no one has seen God at any time. So this is not physical vision. This is spiritual insight, perception of the heart. The purer the heart is, the more conscious we become of God and the more we see him and perceive him. Psalms 16 verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Next time, peacemakers and the persecuted. Come back and study with us again.